I received an email this week. Uh, story went like this. So this guy is driving down a street, sees the traffic camera. And uh, you know what I'm talking about? Those ones that take your picture when you're going too fast. And so as he's driving by, clearly knowing he's under the speed limit, goes past this traffic camera and the thing snaps the picture anyway. And the guy's like, no way. I wasn't speeding. So he goes around the block and goes even slower and goes past this thing. And it snaps again. So he says, that's ridiculous. Goes around the third time. And this time he's going well below the speed limit and goes by, snaps again. Fourth and fifth time does the same. The fifth time he's going by, he is at an absolute snail's pace, snaps again. A couple weeks later, he gets five tickets in the mail for not wearing his seatbelt. <laughs> got that email this week from Mike Davis. Let me tell you something. Not sure uh, where Mike got the story from, but let, let's just say this. There's times where we think we know what's going on, and we don't. There's times we think we know what we're supposed to be doing, and we're not. Today we're talking about how to have that clear-thinking heart. In the midst of all that we know is true, what should I be focusing on? How should I be living so that I'm absolutely clear-thinking in what I'm doing? Focused on what God wants to focus on, accomplishing what He wants to accomplish. We're going to be looking at Galatians chapter 4, verses 8 through 31. So the whole rest of Galatians chapter 4. The ushers are going to be coming forward, and they've got some Bibles in their hands. If uh, you do not have a Bible, just raise your hands. We'd love to get one to you, okay? We're just going to walk verse by verse through this. So just raise your hands, and we'll get a Bible to you. How can I stay clear thinking in my heart? How can I live with that clear thinking heart? First point, live in the power of your almighty God. Live in the power of your almighty God. You know, as we hit the last chapter or the last part of chapter four here, <clears throat> we have to recognize Paul's been going on since Galatians chapter three and really even the end of chapter two on you need to understand this. It's not about the law. It's about faith. It's about how we can live with him, trusting him, believing in him. So as he ends up chapter four here, he starts out with a power of God statement. Let's just start in verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. He's saying, remember, there was a time, you believers, there was a time before you knew who God was. And in that moment, we could use the word enslaved. And he says, you were enslaved to these little g gods as a matter of fact they wouldn't even be warranted as a level of god but you're making them an idol you're giving them a priority in your life giving what a priority in life people things stuff that you can own maybe the pride of life respect you're going after things in your life that are so important to you that they're derailing you you're made little g gods and they didn't even warrant the phrase, God, they were so little. He says, formerly, you did not know God. You were enslaved to those that by nature are not even little g-gods. Verse 9, but now you have come to know God. Capital G, God. The one God. God himself. You know him. 
It says, you've come to know him. But more than that, it says, rather, to be known by him. In other words, we have this opportunity for us to begin to grasp character of the Almighty. We have a chance to be able to spend our days and our weeks learning more about him, whether it be through time in the word or just paying attention in life. And as we watch him move and as we watch him work, we get to know him. We can know his character. We can know his passions. We can know what God is going after. But more than that, he knows you. Now, don't get me wrong. It's not that he didn't know who you were before you came to know him. He knows everything about us before and after. He knows everything about everything. But the reality is this know is relational. He knows you as in He's spending time with you and you're spending time with him. He's beginning to be able to make an impact on you and he's beginning to be able to interact with you in a way where you can say, he knows me and I know him. Each and every day, we have a chance to go after that, to know God and to be known by him. To have a relationship that can rock your every moment of every day or just punch into work. Just do whatever. Just live life and go after the little g gods. He's saying, be careful. You have a chance for the one who is almighty to be able to be interacting in your life. Don't miss out. You can know him and you can be known by him. He says right after that, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? He's saying, I want you to understand this. What you used to be hanging out with, who you used to be hanging out with, what you used to be trying to do or be, how you used to be trying to get to God. Weak, worthless. Weak, not powerful. Not able to get the job done. Worthless, not of any value. What you were going after wasn't getting you closer to him. It wasn't building relationship with him. You were not experiencing transformation. There was no hope. But you're going back. What are you doing? Right? That's where Paul's at. Okay. So let's be real for a minute. Come on. Every day, you and me, that's what we're wrestling with, right? We're going back. We just keep going back. Why? Why? When I could know the Almighty and He can change me for forever, do I go back to what's weak and worthless and doesn't change me at all? Doesn't help me know Him better. And it certainly doesn't bring Him glory. What am I thinking about? What am I thinking about? Thinking about me. That's what I'm thinking about, right? It's a little self-adventure. That's what we go on. I mean, let's really dissect it. Whenever I go after these things that are weak and worthless, I'm really going after the immediate payoff to me. What looks good, what feels good, or what shows me off. 
the things of the world. Me, me, me. So let's just be careful that as we wake up each morning, we're simply saying this. Please, Lord, not today. May I today be rocked by you. May I today just have you so squarely in front of me that me isn't really important anymore. You are. May I know you and be known by you. May your power alter my day. How I would have lived is now different because I've met you face to face. You know, we use words like devotions and then somehow it just becomes the most cold phrase in the world. And so we end up talking about these ritualistic events we have or don't have in the morning. But we should be talking about a God that we can meet and know and be known by. It's not some ritual. It's the God of the universe. And he's right there to meet you and to know you and to be known by you. We need to be living in the power of the Almighty. That's clear thinking. You know, he goes a little bit further here. He says in verse 10, You observe days and months and seasons and years. What's he talking about? Well, I'll tell you, he's, he's talking to some Jews or some Gentiles who are being drawn towards Jewish living. So he's probably talking about the Jewish calendars and how important those were to the ritualistic life they lived. When he says days... You know, you're talking about those once a week Sabbaths. Absolutely essential that that day is represented properly. You know, when he starts talking about months, the new moon, they had new moon celebrations. They had that recognized each and every month. You must be clear about it. Seasons. I wrote down a few. The feast of the Passover or a Pentecost, the feast of the tabernacles. Things that they tended to try to do throughout a year to represent and remember years, like the Jubilee year. There was a lot that went on in the Jewish community and culture that was ritualistic in nature, and these guys were going back to it. It it was essentially like saying, look, the thing you're going back to is the thing that didn't get it done first. Why are you repeating it? In the Jewish culture, it would be those Jewish rituals. What is it in our culture? What are we going back to that our culture celebrates and says, this is the way to get to God? What are you going back to? I mean, each of us is probably grabbing onto different things, but I'll tell you, our culture, pretty big on words like, everything is relative. You're going to have to make some decisions for yourself. And so maybe I'm out exploring the world from my vantage point and my view. Or maybe it's respect. I need the capital R E S P E C T. You better start looking at me and listening to me. You better start respecting me. Maybe it's just good old feelings. Please make it feel good today. That's what I'm all about. You know, our world is all about the temporal. Our world is all about the immediacy. And uh, the Jewish world actually had some sophistication to it. I mean, it had some religiosity that was about other. We don't even have that, right? I mean, think about our society and how much it's just about today and make it pay off. Be careful. Don't go back there. That's what Paul's saying. Don't return to the junk that didn't work in the first place. 
He says at the end, I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Okay, a little bit of a smackdown, right? Paul's getting a little rough and he's saying, look, what's going on? Is there any worthwhile element here at all? Are you truly believers? Are you truly giving God the glory? Then start doing it. Release the junk and embrace the power of the almighty. God at work in your life. Live his power. Live the relationship. Be changed by him like never before. This is an awesome moment for us to be celebrating each day when we wake up. You know, in the last week and a half here, I sat down, I was talking with somebody who had recently renewed their walk with Christ. And his statements went something like this. I am on fire now. I can't explain to you what's going on, but the word, like I can't get enough of it. I'm just telling you, it seems like every time I open it up, there's just a spot I'm supposed to be. And I can only keep using phrase like, are you kidding me? And then I start reading and it's right there. That's exactly what I need to be working on. That's exactly what I need to be hearing. I, I go to pray and all of a sudden I look up and time is blown by. I am just loving walking with the Lord. Purity, I actually want it now. Not think I should want it, but want it. That's where this guy's at. How about you? How about me? Are we hungry for that? For a passion for him, for a passion for the word, for a passion for purity. Not because we're supposed to, but because we've come to know him and he's changing us. But because we've just been so altered by him that, wow, that's where I want to be. I don't want to be outside of it. I can see that the other doesn't pay off. Rock my world, God. We need to be ready to live in his power. Not out of guilt, out of opportunity. Not out of a a weight of legalism, but out of an amazing privilege of knowing the Almighty and being rocked by him for forever. My question for you is this. Are you ready to live in the power of the Almighty? Are you ready to live in a relationship with the Almighty? Not because you should, but because there's nothing better. It's time for us to take that deep breath, really breathe it in, and release. We get really mixed up in this world, and it's easy to get confused. Are you ready to live him? Are you ready to embrace him? Are you ready to live in the power of the almighty God? That's our first challenge. Second, we need to live according to love and passion that drew you to Christ. Live in the power of the almighty God. That's the first one. But now we need to live according to the love and passion that drew you to Christ. This love and this passion. You know, As we go after love and passion, drawing us to him, we have to see exactly what he's doing. Take a look in verse 12 here. He says, brothers, an endearing phrase, brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. Brothers, I want you to know this. He's saying, we're related to each other. We're family. Yes, through what Christ has done for us. But I want you to know this. Know this. 
I entreat you. I plead with you. Please hear this. Become as I am, for I also have become as you are. What? I got to tell you, I read this phrase over and over, looked in a bunch of different um, translations, and then went to the original, just trying to figure out what exactly are we trying to say here? I think this is the best way to understand it. Become as I am. I have gone over to living a faith-based, prioritized life. That law thing, I was big in it. I was a big-time Pharisee living the law, but not anymore. Now, I'm living a faith-based walk. He's saying, become as I am, faith-based. For I also have become as you are. In other words, I became like a Gentile. I'm living the faith-based thing and letting the law behind. Can, can I tell you, if you're starting to go over to the law, you're missing it. You're going to the place I was. Go to the place I am. Walking with him, running hard with him, in faith with him. Become a faith believer. Lean on that. Not on your works, but on your trusting in the Almighty and his amazing character and person for you. Are you leaning on him? Are you believing in him? Or are you getting up each day trying to muscle it, trying to earn it? He says, because I am for for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. He is now beginning into a, let's remember where you had your act together. He says, you did me no wrong. And the entire time I was with you, you treated me well. You did me no wrong. Then he says, you know, it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. I had a bodily ailment, and that's why I started preaching the gospel there. I was on my way through, and I had to stop because I was sick. A bodily ailment. We don't know what it is. We don't know what got to him. But whatever it was, he says, a little bit after that, it was a trial to you. Think of it this way. It was bad enough that they had to spend a pretty good amount of time taking care of him. And to be quite honest and a little bit gross, I mean, back then, bodily ailments often entailed some kind of infections and diseases, odors that we don't really want to think about. And in the midst of all of that, you're a bit of a trial to me, thank you. The amount of care that they had to put in, we don't really know what it all meant. But somehow this bodily ailment, it was a trial. Have you used that about anybody you've ever kind of taken care of when they're sick? You know, like they got a fever of 100 and you're like, you're a trial. Like that's a big statement, right? Whatever it was, it was prolonged. Whatever it was, probably a little bit nasty. And in the midst of it, he's saying, you were unbelievable. You received me in, you cared for me. Why is he going this direction? He's saying, think about where you were. Think about the love you had. Think about the passion that you had. Think about what originally was drawing you to Christ and how you were after you were just drawn to him. You were an amazing receiver and carer for me. He says, what then has become of the blessing that you felt? I know that it paid off for you. I know emotionally you had this sense of blessing going on and what? Where is it? What's going on? You're losing what you used to have. For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. 
Um, I'm not sure what value that had for Paul. You know, I think you would have absolutely just torn your eyes out and handed them over. Wow. That's graphic. Probably not really helpful when you think about it. What do you do with that? You know, so we're definitely talking metaphor here, right? Like this isn't one of those. Thank you. This is very helpful. I appreciate what you've done for me today, right? This is more of a like he's saying sacrifice. You had high sacrifice. You were ready to deliver for me at massive cost to self. That's where you were. He says, have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? I'm just sharing with you what's going on about law and faith, guys. How am I becoming your enemy? Come on. Think about where we were. Think about the relationship we have. Think about what I'm going after and the truth I'm going after. Don't wall me off. Please don't wall me off. You know, Paul is going a direction here of just saying, it's tough to share the truth. Cost is high. Because if you don't trust me and you walk away from me, I can lose out on that relationship. But guess what? I have to give God the glory first. And I've got to hang on the truth first. Gently, but truth. He says right after it, they make much of you. They, these Judaizers, they make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It's about showing them off, guys, and watch out. This is about aggrandizing themselves. This is about them being more important. Be very careful. How are you doing with people who are in your life that are directing or helping or even just speaking a moment of praise or advice? Are they doing it for their own good and their own purpose? Be careful. Be able to discern what's happening. The advice was taking them off track. They were losing sight of their original love and original passions. And they were starting to get all uptight about things that didn't matter. That's what was going on. He says, It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you. In other words, please don't just do it when I'm there, but when I'm not there, let's make sure good things are happening. My little children. He meant this in a very endearing way, not some condescending way, but I'm caring for you. My heart hurts for you. In fact, I am again in the anguish of childbirth, my little children. I am trying to help you come to know Christ in a real and vivid way. I want you to be rocked. I want you to be altered. I want you to know this is who Jesus Christ is. Children, hear this. That's what Paul's saying. High passion, high care. When is he going to do this until? Remember this big word until we talked about last week? It means at that point it stops. When's he going to stop doing this childbirth, dealing with them as little children thing? Until Christ is formed in you. Look, we all have a calling, Romans chapter 8, to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. To bring him glory by looking more like him. By loving him and being passionate about him. By being hungry to be with him. By being hungry to look like him. By being hungry to respond like him in this world. Showing him off. Paul's saying, I want to be with you until the bitter end. 
until the absolute perfect glory has taken place. You looking like Christ. He says at the end here, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. You're missing the boat. You know, Paul had said a couple times in different sections of Scripture where he basically speaks more firmly in the written word than he did when, did when he was present with them. His relationship with them was very gentle, apparently, and his words in the letters are very challenging. And he's saying, look, I'd love to be with you and just spend time relating to you and try to soften it all up. I want you to hear this. You matter to me. That's what he's saying. You matter to me. How in the world do we know if we're losing our love and our passion? How can we know? I was reading this week uh, in a magazine. I wrote down these things. Two things that we can use as a measure of the condition of our soul. Two things that we can use as a measure of the condition of our soul. No, it's not how long was I in devotions for. No, it's not how many verses have I memorized. It's not stuff or task. Number one, am I more or less easily irritated right now? Good conditional measurement of the soul. Am I more or less easily irritated right now? Number two, Am I more or less easily discouraged right now? Am I in a spot where it doesn't take much to push me and I fall off of where I'm supposed to stand? We can easily get there. We can get there through exhaustion. We can get there through wrestling with tough things in life that challenge us and put us off of our game. We can get in a spot where our eyes are no longer focused on Jesus Christ, but they are focused on the problem. Remember the thumb thing we did before where it's like you take your thumb as the problem and you bring it in so close that all you can see is your thumb, you're off kilter. How do we get there? Because things distract us and they hurt us. And in the midst of pain and in the midst of distraction, we start tailing off. What's the best way to measure it? Do I tend to be more or less easily distracted, discouraged? Am I getting bumped off things easily? really an easy check i was actually kind of cut to the core when i read that one like well that's not a fair question what if it was really a hard moment of no it really is just about is it just easier to knock me off my game right now my soul is definitely losing its passion condition ask yourself those two tough questions guess who that came from dallas willard who's dallas willard he's the guy who did the whole writings on spiritual disciplines He was being asked, how can you know the condition of your soul? And they were expecting the answer, you need to have this many spiritual disciplines in this fashion and in this way. And guess what they were told? Well, are you getting ticked off easily? That's the answer. You're kidding me. All your studies give me that? Yes. Wow. I better write it down. What's ticking you off? What's rattling you? Is it taking a small amount to rattle you? The thermometer is telling you something. It's time to let the condition of the soul be replenished with time with the Almighty. Time alone with Him. Just dump it at Him. Dump it at His feet and say, here's what's bothering me. And and it shouldn't be. So what does that mean, Lord? What needs to be worked on? Help me focus on the right thing. You. There was a Persian king. He had captured a prince and his family. This Persian king 
kept them captive for a number of months. And he brought the prince and the family in. And he ended up saying to the prince, how much will you give me if I let you go? He said, I will give you half of my wealth. The king said, how much would you give me if I let your children go? He said, I will give you all of my wealth. He said, well, how much will you give me if I let your wife go? I will give you me. I don't want to be free if you can let her be free. The king looked at him and said, I've never seen that devotion for a wife. You're all free. Just go. And he released him. As they were driving home, riding home, the uh, prince looked over at the woman and said, did you see the way that that man captivated a room? Did you see his authority and his power? Did you see the way people responded to him? That man was unbelievable. She said, I didn't see that at all. My eyes were fixed on the one who would give his life for me. I saw you. You know, that's just a human example. How much more should we be saying that about Jesus Christ in our life? Did you see that stuff around you that looked so enticing? I didn't even see that. Are you kidding me? My eyes are fixed on the one who would give his life for me. How do we get the spiritual pulse back in our life? Focus. We need to have the proper focus on the one who would give his life for us. May we be moved, not by the religiosity of it, but by the sacrifice, by the by the personal nature of Jesus' love for you and for me and be blown away for all eternity. I can't imagine taking my eyes off of you. You commanded the room as far as I was concerned. That's where we need to be. We need to live according to that original love and passion that drew us to Jesus Christ, his sacrifice. Are you ready to go to the one who's sacrificing for you? Are you ready to lean on him with all you've got? It's time for us to give our hearts to him. It's time for us to lean on him and be renewed each and every day by what he does for us. Let him blow you away. Let him blow you away. Let me just challenge you with this. In your home, with your family, with your children, with your spouse, are you focusing more on the wrong being done and the disrespect? Or are your eyes fixed squarely on the author and perfecter of your good faith, Jesus Christ himself? It'll make us get off our game fast and all the little things will start ticking us off. How about at work? How are you doing at work? All the little things at work bothering you? Your boss is being pretty dumb about things, not seeing stuff the way you think they should, and we get easily caught up in that water cooler talk of how ridiculous people are and what they're thinking, and I don't know what... Be careful. See Jesus Christ in the midst of your life. How about in the church? How are you doing here? When we walk in here each and every week and we've got a chance to be talking with people in the hallways and we've got a chance to be seeing people and putting an arm around them, are we instead seeing the ridiculous things that we think should be different because of and fill in the blank? Or are we being able to say, Jesus Christ at work? What's his plan and how can I fit in? How can we give God the glory today?
That's the challenge. That we don't get off our game. Are you easily irritated? Are you easily discouraged? You're off your game. Get closer to him. He's ready to rock your world. So that's the first challenge and the second challenge. We need to live in his power. We need to live in his passion. The third piece, we need to live according to the truths of the whole Bible. The truths of the whole Bible. Not just part of it, the whole of it. Okay? So Paul goes into quite a little dissertation here. And we're just going to walk through this kind of quickly. But he says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through the promise. He's saying, hey, you talk about the law. What's the law? Well, in Jewish community, the law, the Torah, it's five books. It's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. And in the middle of the book of Genesis, we've got the story of Abraham. You say you're all about the law. Well, here is the story of Abraham that's in the law. Remember in Abraham, in the story, he's promised to have this unbelievable amount of people that come from him. And yet he's got a wife who can't have kids. And while the promise is made, decades go by and it's not happening. And so Sarah, his wife, ends up saying, you know what? Let's just take the matters into our own hands. Maybe that's what God meant to do. So you go take Hagar, concubine slave. Take her. Go ahead and have a child. And so Abraham... And all of his wiseness says, yeah, that sounds good. And so he goes after that. And Hagar ends up having a son, Ishmael, a son of the flesh, because this is not through the promise. This is not going the way he wanted it to go. He is going against what God was saying. He wasn't trusting. But there was eventually a son that came to Sarah, Isaac. And this was a child of the promise, child of hope, a child that God had commanded. And was promising through. He's saying, just remember, there were two, a son of the flesh and a son of the promise. Now, here we go. Verse 24. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. Okay, I'm going to spend one second here. All right? Be very careful with this word. The best interpretation of this here is, this will be interpreted through a good example. Okay? The word allegory literally means, the mainline story means nothing, but the underlying is what the real value has. Okay? And the Bible was actually interpreted allegorically for many years by people. They would read whatever they read and they would say, I believe this represents this and this represents that. And they would just speak allegorically and try to make it apply to their life. Be careful, okay? When should you allow that to be the way it's read? Well, through inspiration, when God says, go ahead and read it that way, okay? That's probably a good time to do it, and that's the only time to do it, all right? Read the scriptures literally for what they're worth. What stories are being shown? What principles are being proven? And then when God says, oh, by the way, that also represents something. Say, oh, good, thanks for the tip, okay? Don't go looking for all the little represents all over the place and all the little allegories all over the place. But when God says this represents something, then we can go, thank you, and take it that way. Does that make sense? Really important, okay? Because as you're reading through scripture, you start trying to do this yourself. I'm telling you, you're going to come back with a lot of whacked ideas. Okay? So let's be careful. Let's read through literally what it says, except when it says to be challenged to the, to the further. Okay? So allegorically, what does it say here? These women are two covenants. Okay? One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. This is the one who went and had the child 
who was the concubine. Shouldn't have done it. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above, that new Jerusalem, that one coming, is free. And she is our mother. What does that mean, our mother? Remember, Paul's a Jew. He's coming through the line of Abraham and Isaac. He's saying, our mother is Sarah. We came as children of the promise, those who are Jews, those who are believers even, because we now are under the promise of Abraham. Our mother is Sarah. She's the promised one. He says, for it is written, rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not not in labor. Why? Because we're masochists? No. For the children of the desolate one will be more. There are going to be a lot of kids coming. Don't worry, the generations are being managed. It's being covered. That's what he's saying, right? He's quoting Isaiah here. Now he says in verse 29 here, 28. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. Hear this, guys. Even from the law, there's an example of doing it by the flesh and it doesn't work. And then doing it by faith and it does. We've got an example of flesh falls apart. It actually goes awry. But doing it by faith, children of the promise. Use the law. You want to say you're going to follow the law? Then follow the whole of the law. Look at the example of how flesh did nothing, but faith did everything. That's all Paul's trying to say here. It's a bit of a complex example, but he's trying to get done in the end. Please let go of the whole, we're great, we're holding on to the law. The law is telling you to let go of flesh and get after this faith thing. Go after it. You can be children of the promise. He says at the end here, not only can you be children of the promise, but uh, I'll just jump down. He says, but what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman, with the son of the free woman. In other words, the promise to Isaac, the promise to Sarah, the promise to Abraham is that we will somehow have this huge blessing to all the nations through us. And we now get to know that it's through Jesus Christ, through his shed blood. Through faith in God Almighty and Him working in both Jew and Gentile alike. We all having a chance to come to know Him. And He says right at the very end, So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. We have hope. We are children of the promise. We have a purpose and a value. You know, I wrote down here, why should we be going to Scripture? Just three quick points. Why Scripture? Number one, because it's God-breathed. Second Peter 1, 20 and 21. God-inspiring. We're told that these scriptures are actually bringing forth the words of God through man, and we have a chance to see and hear the very special revealing of God's plan because it's God-breathed. Number two, it's fully sufficient. Second Timothy three sixteen and 17 tells us that through scripture, we can be fully equipped. And we have to hear that. It says, through Scripture, we can be fully equipped. Second Timothy three sixteen and 17. You have to really let that sink in. So you're telling me I can be fully equipped with nothing other than the Scripture? Yes. That's what it says. So you're telling me that if I have a struggle and I need to work through my struggle, I can actually find the answer here? Yes. And are you telling me that when I need to pass my chemistry exam tomorrow, that I can read the Scriptures and pass it? No. It is not fully sufficient for everything. It is fully sufficient to equip us unto every good work. Okay? It's not a chemistry book. 
although you can find some cool things about chemistry backed up in it, it is not a chemistry book. The Bible is about you and me becoming more like him. And it has everything we need for life and godliness to be fully equipped unto every good work. As we wrestle with those things in our life that need to be let go of and those things we need to grab onto, scripture is our guideline to be leaning to. Fully sufficient. God breathed. And thirdly, able to help us discern. If you look at Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12, it talks about dividing asunder soul and spirit, bone and marrow. This ability to have insight to us to the point where like that guy I was talking about a little bit earlier where he was saying, I read the Bible and I'm like, you're kidding me. You got that to me right when I needed it. That's what we're talking about. The Holy Spirit at work in your life and scriptures able to help you to discern. Why do we need to go to the whole of the Bible? Because this whole word given by God Almighty to help lead us back to glorifying him. And he's the one who brought it. And he's the one who inspired it. And he's guaranteeing it's fully sufficient. And it'll help discern. That's why we go to the word. That's why we spend time preaching the word each week. Rather than a cool magazine article we read. We're preaching the word. Power. Under God's control. You know. As we wrestle with these things. My question to you is this. Are you going to the word? And letting the word rock your world? Are you letting God speak to you and convince you that you are a child of the promise? That you, through faith, can be altered for all eternity? That you can actually be leaning on Him as you trust in His word, as you hear from Him, and you can be different for having met Him? A child of the promise. That you can have faith in Him and find Him ever faithful. Are you ready to know him so personally and so passionately that you can sing a word like you are truly faithful and it's not some words you've read, but it's something you're truly trusting in and leaning on. May we go out this week with this goal in mind. Let's live his power. Let's live his passion. Let's live the whole of his word and let's embrace this fact. We have an ever faithful God who is ready to be so relational with us and we can be changed for all eternity. To God be the glory. Now that is a plan that brings hope. That's a plan where in the end we aren't more distracted or discouraged. We aren't more irritated, but we are less irritated. Let him embrace you. And may you embrace him through the word, through that original passion that brought you to Christ and through his power. We serve an unbelievably faithful God. To God be the glory. Let's pray.